Hello and welcome to The Polling Perspective, a podcast that gives you a behind-the-scenes look at public opinion polling and what's going on in politics today through a series of informal conversations between experts in the field. I'm your host, Doug Schwartz, and I've been directing the Quinnipiac University Poll since 1994. Today, we're going to talk to Scott Keeter, who is a senior survey advisor at Pew Research Center. Over the next hour or so, we talk about different polling methodologies, where the polling field stands today, and how it's changing. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Scott. I certainly did. Good morning, Scott. How you doing? Great, Doug. Nice to be with you. Well, I appreciate it. Um, I want you to know how excited I am to be able to talk to you this morning about all things polling, but it might not come across that I'm so excited because I will admit I'm a little sleep deprived. This is the morning after the first presidential debate, and uh, I was up very late, but I I want you to know I'm not going to ask you any questions about the debate, um, what it means for the horse race. I kind of want to talk about just sort of big picture stuff about the field of public opinion polling. It, it was uh, well past my bedtime as well last night, but I s- stayed to the bitter end with the emphasis on the bitter. <laughs> I hear you. You know, I don't know if you remember, Scott, but I met you a very long time ago. I want to say at least 20, 25 years ago, maybe even longer at an APOR conference. And uh, at the time... You were leading the Virginia Commonwealth University Survey Center. And what I find so remarkable is how you've gone from, you know, sort of those humble beginnings of leading a university poll to the top of our field. You are, you know, you rose to the Pew Research Center Survey Director. You became APOR president, which, again, there's really no higher honor um, in our field. And APOR, I should explain uh, for our audience, is the American Association of Public Opinion Researchers. It's the leading pollster organization in the country. Um, You won the Lifetime Achievement Award from APOR. And I guess my question is, how did you do it? How did you go... (laughs) from University Survey Director, where we both sort of started out our careers, and and, and you've risen to the top. Well, uh, you're way too kind, Doug, uh, and I appreciate the kind words. But, you know, what I've done in my career is uh, have a series of extremely fortunate occurrences. I've met a lot of people. I've always been open to meeting people and talking with them, and that has served me very well because... I met people who then introduced me to other people and opened doors for me that probably wouldn't have been available. You know, just to mention two names in particular, uh, Cliff Zukin, longtime friend and fellow faculty member with me at uh, Rutgers University. Cliff was a good friend, but he was also the director of the Eagleton Poll, the New Jersey State Poll, in conjunction with the Star-Ledger newspaper. He showed me a lot about polling. But he also um, helped me to get that uh, VCU job, which gave me the opportunity to learn a lot about methodology just from the ground up because I I didn't have a background in survey methodology. Cliff also introduced me to Andy Kohut, 
who was the head of the Times Mirror Center for the People and the Press, which is the predecessor to the Pew Research Center, where I now work as a part-time advisor. And, you know, those two individuals helped me immensely, both in terms of what I learned from them and the opportunities that they gave me. So um, I I had opportunities and I tried to take advantage of them. And along the way, I've met lots and lots of other people who uh, have benef- you know, benefited me from, from their knowledge and their hard work. Um, Courtney Kennedy, the woman who succeeded me as director of survey research at Pew Research Center, was an intern at Pew in 2004 when she graduated from college. And I collaborated on a lot of research with her, things that I probably wouldn't have been able to do with without her keen insights. And then, you know, I've benefited greatly from the fact that she came back to Pew uh, many years later to to replace me. So those are just three individuals, but I could I could name lots more uh, from whom I've learned and opportunities that I've benefited from. Yeah, you know. When I met you, Scott, you kind of had an influence on me because I was a young pollster starting out in my career. And I remember meeting you, and I think it was on an airplane, actually. And you took the time to talk with me about all things polling. And I was like, wow, I'm a, you know, starting out, I'm a nobody. And here's this guy, Scott Keeter, running the survey center, and he's telling me, all about the field. And I was like, wow, what a nice guy. And I, and boy, now I feel pretty good about APOR and I'm I'm enjoying myself. This seems to be, and I do think that, you know, APOR is one of the few, uh, or I should say the polling profession, I feel like is one of the few professions out there where there is such great collegiality that, you know, people genuinely want to help each other. Um, and, you know, talk to each other about their experiences in the field and help others grow in the field. Um, you know, I know there's a whole mentoring program at APOR. I, I just think the polling field is just so great in that respect. So the fact that you mentioned Cliff Zukin and Andy Koha, I want to sort of add your name to my list of positive influences um, on my career. Well, I think that's a great point about APOR. APOR has been a terrific venue for people to get together, to network. Uh, in fact, it was at an APOR meeting when I first met Andy Kohut. But you're you're also very right about the amazing generosity of people in APOR to share what they know and what they've learned and their experiences, despite the fact that you know, in many cases, they're competitors. You think of particularly about the pollsters for the major news organizations. They're in direct competition with each other, and yet they they go into to the um, to the conference and talk about the challenges that they're trying to face, the strategies that they're using to to deal with those challenges, and freely sharing um, that knowledge with each other in the interest of making the field better. So it, it's, a, it's really an extraordinary organization and has been responsible for, I think, the professional development of lots and lots of us in the field. Now, you mentioned some of the giants in the field, Andy Koha, Cliff Zukin, 
I'm thinking back to my days when I started out at CBS News in 1989, uh, Kathy Frankovic, who I worked for, and Warren Matoski at, at CBS News. And one of my concerns is, I, and this isn't to knock the current leaders of our field right now, but I feel like there is no, we don't have the stature of a Warren Matoski or an Andy Kohut to sort of step in when there's these big, you know, controversies about polling, questions about polling. Um, I kind of wish we had some of those real, for lack of a better word, heavy hitters, if you will, that could, you know, be in the press and, and, and talk about polling in such an authoritative way. I'm not sure what your thoughts are on that. Well, it's certainly the case that there, there were some amazing pioneers, really, people who developed methodologies, you know, and popularized them. People like Warren Matofsky, who was one of the developers of random digit dialing, was also a very uh, gruff and kind of crusty person. Mm -hmm. But he's a perfect example of somebody who was a great mentor, because if you know, if you got into an argument with him, he, he could be very tough on you. But the fact is, if you went to him for help, he was as kind and open and, and giving as anybody you've ever seen. Um, and, you know, when you and I were going to those meetings long, long ago, we were still in we were still able to be in uh, in touch there with people who had been pioneers, the very first generation of pollsters. George Gallup and others mm. were gone from the scene at that point, but people who had worked directly with them and for them, like Andy, who worked for Gallup, you know, were there, and they certainly did have tremendous stature in the field. But, you know, the field has changed a lot. The barriers to entry have, have come down. More people are able to, to get into the field. It's probably a younger field uh, than it was in those days, um, and and I think that's probably for the good. So whatever we lack, um, you know, in terms of not having as many elder statesmen, uh, we sort of make up for that by the the kind of energy and creativity, um, the scientific orientation of a lot of the younger rising stars in in the field. But of course, the, the the lowered barriers also have made it possible for people who don't know what they're doing to get into the field, and that you know that's brought some downside and some reputational risks to polling that uh, you know we're all having to deal with every time there's an election and a, a high-profile election like the one we're in right now. I really liked how you laid that out. That there are definitely some positives in our field with younger folks getting into it, more creativity, experimenting. Um, but I also agree with you that there has been a downside, that there are folks who don't know um, polling as well as we hope they would, whose poll results get published, um, especially on social media. And it is a concern of mine. Do you have a specific concern about if you want to say types of polls in terms of methodology that you're concerned about and them getting too much um, exposure, if you will, is there anything in particular that you're concerned about regarding the changes in our field? 
We're, we're facing a lot of challenges, obviously. Response rates have gone down steadily, you know, from what didn't seem like particularly great response rates when I was first in the field, response rates in the 30s and 40s, down to 5% or, or lower on phone surveys these days. And in response to that, we've seen a lot of creativity on the part of pollsters. But, you know, as response rates have gone down, the costs have gone up. I mean, just it's just a, a fact of mathematics that the more effort you have to put in to get an interview on a, a random sample poll, uh, the more it's going to cost and the fewer the people who are going to be able to do it or um, the quality may may suffer as a result of that because a dollar spent on additional calls can't be spent on questionnaire testing or, or some other thing that might improve the quality. So, you know, obviously the Internet has been the thing that's made the biggest difference. That's the thing that's made it cheaper to do polls. It's opened up the doors to to lots of people doing polls who may or may not have the expertise. And if there if there is a problem, um, you know, it's coming from some of the opt in Internet polls. We've done a lot of work at the center to try to look at the at the quality of opt in samples, um, at what can be done to make opt in samples more credible. Um, I'm I am not a doctrinaire person about this. I believe that these opt-in samples, non-probability, if you want to call them that, you know, have their place in research. We use them for questionnaire testing and other kind of qualitative purposes. And I think that there are, you know, some out there that are are quite respectable, you know, with error rates that aren't too different from those that come from probability-based polls. But in order to do them well, because you're starting with a sample that you don't really know what it is or what it represents, you need to to be able to do a lot of modeling. Uh, there may be things on the sampling side that you can do to get yourself a better start. And I'm just not sure that everybody in the field doing those kinds of polls really has that expertise. So I think that's where the, the trouble can come from. And as you as you implied in your question, Part of the problem is that these these kinds of things can get publicity uh, because there's just a lot of, you know, there's a lot of catnip factor to them. And, you know, the news organizations having, you know, been battered by the recession and now the, the COVID uh, related recession, you know, they don't have the volume of personnel with the kind of expertise to be the gatekeepers that they once did. Uh, they're still doing, I think, a very good job, particularly the major news organizations. They've still got good people working for them, but their staffs are smaller than they used to be. And, you know, there may be temptations on the part of reporters and others to report on things that really shouldn't be airworthy or printworthy. So that's kind of where I see the, the you know, the potential soft spots. Yeah, I agree with you in terms of the potential reputational harm to the field of pollsters who really don't have the expertise in opt-in online polling. And I guess my question for you would be, how does a person distinguish between an opt-in online polling that they can trust versus opt-in online polling that they shouldn't trust? Is it you know, the ones that are more transparent? Are, the, are there certain things that you can do? Because as you said, there are now so many in online polls out there in the public sphere. It's hard to, to know which one to trust. 
It's a very difficult question, and it's one that we get all the time. So I start with uh, something you mentioned, which is transparency. If, if a pollster is not willing to tell you the details behind their methodology, how they get their samples, you know, how are people opting in, what kind of controls or protections are there to make sure that you're not getting bogus respondents in, in your opt-in samples. And then, you know, what are you doing in terms of the modeling? What What kind of weighting are you doing? How are you trying to make the sample as representative of whatever your target population is as possible. And and give me some details. How many variables are you using? Where are you getting your targets? Those kinds of things, you know, which which for some in the opt-in world are kind of the special sauce or might have a competitive, you know, that they might get their competitive edge from some of what they do. You know, you can understand that there may be some reluctance, but it also means that I just, I'm just not as trusting of polls that don't tell me those things. Our work on non-probability sampling suggests to us that all, all of the things being equal, adjusting your sample on more variables is better than adjusting your sample on fewer. So if you get an opt-in sample that's just been weighted on three or four demographic variables, it's probably not a very good sample, you know, and we've been able to experimentally show that in our work. Um, I, I'd love to see some of that work, and I know Pew is great when it comes to educating us. I, I have to say, in the little bit of digging that I've done on non-probability opt-in online polling, I, I don't find much in terms of the methodology, for example, you know, what variables they're waiting on. And I don't mean to paint with a broad brush here. I'm sure that there are some that do put out that kind of information. Um, but in general, I, I find it hard to get at the methodology. I know that APOR has the transparency initiative and says, you know, you need to be very clear about certain things, about what you're doing and how, how you're doing your polling. We're a member. I know Pew's a member. Um, I go to the websites and I am trying to figure out, oh, I'm digging, show me the methodology. How are you waiting? What are your targets? Things like that. I, I can't find it. How are you getting your sample? I, I really, I can't find the information. It's a problem. You know, and I think the, the Transparency Initiative, which is a truly wonderful effort by, by APOR, started by Peter Miller, um, you know, in his presidential address several years ago, that, that that's, a, that's a big and good step forward, but it's not enough. And, you know, I know that in, I was part of the group that tried to stand up the transparency initiative. And, you know, part of what we had to contend with was the trade-off between the requirement that people be highly transparent, very detailed, even to the point of, you know, depositing uh, data or detail code about the methodology to a poor and people's willingness to comply or just not be a part of the transparency initiative. So there's a balance there between, you know, how much could be required and still, you know, have a, a decent uh, critical mass of pollsters join up. And, you know, I don't know if we got the, got the balance right, if there's opportunities to make it a little stricter and, you know, compel more disclosure. I hope that we could move in that direction. So it's not perfect, but, you know, I think it's it's way better than it used to be. You know, one of my concerns about this election is that there has been a lot of focus, appropriately so, on, you know, what was the 
major methodological issue that caused pollsters in 16 to be you know off uh, which was not waiting by education and I think that's good that that was talked about. It was talked about, I know, by the the APOR committee after 2016 as one of the reasons why polls were off um, in some states. Just to be clear, the national polls were very much on target. Most state pollsters got it right, but there were some state polls that were off in key swing states. And uh, the reason was they didn't wait by education, underestimating their percentage of the electorate that were uh, white non-college educated, and which was Trump's base. But because there's been such focus on that one issue, and people keep talking about that, it seems to me we're missing the bigger picture, which is there are a, a plethora of opt-in online polls that are, for lack of a better word, uh, you know, unproven, and they're out there, and and people as I can tell, and both social media and traditional media kind of just take them just as good as high quality live interviewer, random sample pollsters. And it's a concern of mine that, you know, for the public, they see all, you know, a poll is a poll and uh, there's no other, you know, sort of information out there to say, beware, (laughs) viewer, this is non-probability. This is not as accepted. Again, to be clear, I know that there are some good non-probability uh, polls out there, but I do think that there's got to be some sort of a, a warning for the polling consumer out there that this, sh- I think, should be on the radar of possible error in the 2020 pre-election polling. You know, I think the the here we, we have to lean a lot on our friends in, in the major news organizations to serve as gatekeepers to not let polls that are suspect in terms of quality get out into into circulation. Obviously, pollsters have lots of vehicles for publicizing their results, uh, social media in particular. But, you know, for the authoritative discussion of the state of the race, people still do rely on major news organizations, the New York Times, the Washington Post, CNN, and you know, they're, they have pollsters and professionals who are trying to make sure that bad polls don't get disseminated. And whether they can stem the tide or not, I don't know. But, uh, you know, that's one bulwark against um, the problem that you talked about. So I don't know exactly how much more we can, we can do about it. APOR has not wanted to be the polling police you know, and write citations of, of, of uh, bad polling practice, that type of thing. We've That's not been in our culture as a professional organization. We're not like a lot of professions. We don't have a certifying body that says you're, you know, you've passed your exam and you can practice polls. So it is it is a sort of uh, buyer beware kind of market that, that you know, for better or worse is the, is the nature of the beast these days. You know, and I also I, I don't want to uh, I don't want to undersell the quality of the kind of work that you do and others who are trying to do state polling under very difficult conditions. State polling is extraordinarily difficult. I don't think people realize that it takes as much effort to do a state poll as it does to do a national poll. The sample size requirements are comparable. You need a minimum number of interviews in order to have a have a reasonably precise estimate. 
And then you have an extra degree of difficulty. If you're a telephone pollster and if you're using RDD, you don't know how well your drawn sample is going to cover the population of the state because of the cell phone issue, people being able to move you know, away from the place where their cell phone number was issued. And, you know, we have a few tools to try to improve on that, but it's not, you know, it's not foolproof and not perfect. So it's a very difficult thing to do good state polling. And I, I just don't think there's as much of a recognition on the part of the of the poll consuming public of that of that fact. Yeah, well, there's a lot there that I want to touch upon, but um, just taking the the last point about people who have cell phone numbers from a different state, you know, is there the potential that pollsters are, are, are missing them? We're, let's say we're doing a poll of Florida and someone who lives in Florida, but they move from California, you know, and they have a California cell phone number. Are we going to be missing them? And I know Pew has done some great research in terms of trying to estimate you know, in different states, what percentage of people could be missed because of that problem. And I do think that that is a growing um, issue. And I know you can purchase, you know, special kinds of samples to try to get those people based on, you know, their address and billing information. You can try to get them into your sample, but it's not a perfect way of doing it. But do you see this as as a growing issue for RDD state pollsters? I, I do. And, you know, I think um, it has led a, a lot of pollsters to make the decision to shift their sampling strategy to voter files. We've done a fair amount of work on commercial voter files. We did a, We even did a national telephone survey with with a voter file a couple of years ago. And, you know, in states, uh, in some states, you can get pretty good quality voter files that have telephone numbers associated with a majority of the cases. Um, but that's not practical everywhere. And, you know, there's still some tricks to, to using voter files as samples. You know, you solve to some degree the coverage problem because you know that you're drawing samples of people who actually live in the state. But you're trading that off for some other coverage issues in that not everybody on the voter file is going to have a phone number associated with them. And so you have to reckon with what kinds of people are you likely to miss because you, you can't get a phone number for them. So, you know, the field is creative and is trying to trying to deal with these things. And I think the quality of those files and the, the share of people who have phone numbers associated has been increasing. But, you know, it's not necessarily a, a panacea. And philosophically, I know that there are other pollsters who, who still feel like RDD is the, is the gold standard and the best way to go. And, of course, we haven't even talked about there are an increasing number of online probability panels. That's a, something that we've decided to switch to. We haven't completely given up on telephone surveys, but we do very few of them now relying on our panel for most of, of the domestic uh, political and social work that we do. But panels are, are challenged at the state level because most people, even if they have a big panel, they just simply may not have an adequate uh, sample size in a given state to support the kind of polling that, you know, we want to do in an election. Well, you know, I, I have seen how Pew has moved into that realm of 
um, probability based on online panel uh, polling. And, you know, I think that's great. I know you guys have reduced your telephone polling. Do you envision that you'll completely get rid of the, the phone polling and go totally online? Yes, I, I think that day will come. Um, for the record, we don't think that telephone polling is dead by any means, and we don't question the quality that you can get. I think that there are some, particularly some subpopulations, uh, people with very low levels of education, maybe people who are sort of financially struggling, may not be, you know, internet users who can afford pay-as-you-go uh, cell phone. You can reach people like that, and by doing so, increase the quality of the representation that you have of the population with a phone where you, you may not be able to, to get those people in a panel, even if you take extraordinary means to recruit them. But we just have found that the costs, you know, given that we want to have a very high ratio of cell phones to landlines, 75% or, or more, the cost is just prohibitive for us to, to be able to do to do telephone polling at the level that we want. So, you know, we're still doing some. We're using them in part to keep old trends alive that uh, we had collected on the phone over the past 30 years. But we're not uh, really, you know, we're really not using them for regular production anymore. We're an online shop pretty much exclusively now. Gotcha. And for the field, I've heard people say phone polling, you know, that's not going to be the future, who picks up their phone kind of thing. You had mentioned earlier on about the low response rates. You know, I'm hopeful that we can continue to do our RDD polling well into the future. And I know you've said that, you know, you see that as viable. Can you be maybe a little, do you, do you think we're talking, you know, phone polling can go on for five, 10, 20 years, or do you, do you have a, a sense of how long? Because my thought would be, even if we go over to all cell, cell phones, you know, other than the cost, what, what is the methodological problem with doing that? Yeah, we, uh, we actually, I'm laughing a little bit just because, uh, you know, I think it must have been 15 years ago that Andy Kohut and I were laughing. You know, Andy, Andy said, I don't know when I'm going to retire, but I can tell you I'm probably going to go out the door and telephone surveys are going to go out with me. You know, it's like, oh, wow. uh, but, you know, we we in our work on cell phones, we we became convinced that it, what you said is absolutely true, that you can now because cell phone coverage is almost ubiquitous in the U.S., you can do a, you can do a poll on on cell phones and not have any landlines you're missing a small segment of the public, probably uh, older, less educated people who never really wanted to get into the cell phone thing. But that's a declining share of the population. And we did a study in which we took accumulated polls that we'd done over a period of time, and we removed the landline cases from them and just reweighted them as if they, the cells were the only thing we did. And we looked at what difference it makes. And it makes virtually no difference on almost any measure that we're interested in other than some technology adoption measures where you'd end up with a bit of a bias if, you, if you're just on cell phones, you know, and we published that in public opinion quarterly. So it's a, you know, it's definitely a viable strategy, but, you know, not to, not to uh, belabor Andy's point, but 
you know, I kind of thought we'd be past telephone surveys by now. And the fact that they've stayed alive is, you know, kind of a, a continuing surprise to me because people would ask me, OK, so you've written you've written some studies that suggest that, uh, you know, uh, a 15 percent response rate's really not so bad. And then, you know, I'd, we'd have to write one that said, well, a 10 percent response rate is not so bad. And now, um, you know, if we're at five or below um, and we still look at the samples and say, you know, they're not bad. They look pretty good. They can be adjusted to uh, give us a representative look at, at the population. I think I'm going to uh, not speculate about when the end date is because <laughs> I've been proven wrong too many times. Gotcha. We've been talking a lot about methodology and, and how Pew, in my opinion, you know, does gold standard surveys um, when they were doing only telephone polls, it was gold standard. Now that you guys are doing probably based online, you know, when I'm asked about what polls I pay attention to, Pew is always at the top of the list because if you want in-depth analysis and rigorous methodology, Pew is the gold standard for that. And my, my question would be, I kind of miss the fact that um, there aren't as many Pew polls. I say the same thing about Gallup, that at the very time that polls are under the most scrutiny and also are so important in you know this particular election, I wish there were more Pews and Gallups polls out there um, right now. You know, I've already you know mentioned enough about my concerns about the polls that I don't think are the gold standard. What are your thoughts about, you know, Pew, Gallup, some of the really, you know, the strongest when it comes to methodology, not really in the election polling, uh, presidential election polling? That We made a decision prior to the 2016 election that was a considered decision based on a lot of internal discussion with our board of directors, discussion with our major funder, that we would de-emphasize the, the horse race aspect of election polling. Uh, we wouldn't get out of it. We're, you know, we're still doing polls in which we ask people how they're going to vote, whether they're going to vote. We try to analyze the coalitions, of the parties' supports, and so forth. But we felt that there was relatively little added utility to the field in our engaging in that kind of horse race polling. For one thing, we recognized, this was even before the 2016 election outcome, that national polling, which is what we principally focus on, simply isn't necessarily where the action is. And we weren't going to get into state polling. That was just beyond our mission. And we also felt that, you know, there were good state polls out there, yours and others, that meant that the field really didn't necessarily need, you know, another uh, entry by us. I can't speak for Gallup, but I think that in their discussion of their decision to de-emphasize horse race polling, they made they had similar logic. Um, we felt that if we could take the resources that we would otherwise put into, you know, last-minute horse race polls and put them into expanding the size of our panel, um, taking on some additional topics uh, such as trust and democracy, that we could make more, we could make a better contribution to the public dialogue about democracy uh, than if we did 
an, another horse race pole. So that's a little bit of the philosophy that, that went into it. Could you share um, a finding or two, you know, from the kinds of um, election polling that you've done that's, you know, the stuff that you don't normally see in the you know, daily media coverage of, you know, horse race polling, that Pew has really made a contribution to our understanding of what's motivating uh, voters or what, what's happening right now? You know, one of the areas that we've worked in is the area of trust, facts, and democracy. And we're trying to understand how people are processing the news and the cacophony of information that's flowing into them. So one of the things that we did for the past year is to stand up with some grant support, a project that we're calling News Pathways, which started out with a big big survey using our panel, over 10,000 respondents, where we asked them a very detailed inventory of the places where they typically got their news. And then um, we developed an online tool with this that would allow people to come after we did an update. This is a panel, so we're interviewing the same people repeatedly over time. We're asking them what they know, what they perceive to be happening when there are controversies that uh, some might call conspiracy theories out there. We'll ask people if they heard of these things and if they uh, attach any credibility to them. And then we analyze that through the lens of the kind of media diets that they that they uh, are consuming. We didn't do a we didn't do a cluster analysis uh, formally, but we created kind of clusters of news sources that that people tended to to use. And we've tried to we've tried to chronicle the unfolding of the campaign through that mechanism. And I think that's been a an interesting and kind of different contribution. The other thing that that we done that's sort of more in the horse race side of things, but is not trying to do a forecast, if you will, is the work that we've done with voter files. So our panel now is uh, upwards of about 15,000 people. We've matched all of our panelists, or as many as can be matched, to at least two commercial voter files uh, so that we have a record of their actual turnout, as well as other information about them, some demographic information that we might not have some other data that comes with these commercial files. And then we can use that to look back at elections like the 2016 election or the 2018 midterm, and we can restrict the sample to people that we know voted. You know, we know as political scientists that people have a, have a tendency to overreport having voted, and that creates some distortions in, in the data. We also know that there are other problems in polls that um, if you knew who, who had voted, and who hadn't, you might be able to reduce your errors. And so one thing that we were able to, to learn is, uh, you know, sort of what the shape of the 2016 electorate actually was using uh, a survey that we conducted right after the election in November and early December of 2016, and then later matching uh, the panelists to voter files and narrowing it down to the, you know, to the actual voters. So that's a couple of examples of things that we're trying to do that are taking a longer look at the political situation. That's really interesting. What should our listeners do? How do they get access to it? What's your website? 
So our, our website is pewresearch.org, and Pew is the family name of the Pew Charitable Trust, which is our principal funder. So it's pewresearch.org. And then on that page, you will see tabs for each of the major research areas that we have. We have American politics, of course, but we also have social and demographic trends, race and ethnicity, the Global Attitudes Project, journalism, internet and technology, and science. And each of those areas has its own research agenda. We have a lot of cross-center work that combines like um, recently, uh, we put out a report on science around the world, which was based on a collaboration of the Global Attitudes team and the, uh, the science team. But there is also a tab on there for methods, and that tab will bring the readers to uh, all of the methodological research that we've done, the things that I was just described. If you go to that tab, you'll find uh, the first thing will be the 2018 voter file study that we just released uh, a couple of weeks ago. And, um, you know, a lot of this experimental work that I've been talking about, some of our greatest hits from several years ago, non-response analysis, non-probability samples and the like, as well as a couple of, I think, quite uh, interesting guides to public opinion polling and how what questions to ask and what to think about when you're trying to assess uh, public opinion polls. Those are all there on that methods page. Well, that's some great stuff, Scott. I, I want to sort of bring us back to the election and ask you, you know, how are you feeling about the accuracy of, of the election polls overall? Do you um, are you overall, I mean, confident? I mean, personally, I am overall confident in, in the high quality polling that's being done, but I'm just curious, are you feeling confident or do you have any significant concerns? I, I try to be a realist about these things. I am confident. Uh, I think that we saw some things in 2016 that we've learned from, and we also saw some things that should give us some degree of confidence. The, as you mentioned, the national polling was generally quite accurate, in some ways more so in 2016 than even it had been in 2012 when the polls kind of underestimated uh, Barack Obama's level of support. So I think the basic mechanics of getting people to interview and getting them you know, to answer uh, honestly um, are pretty solid. You know, there are some questions. There are questions. Um, the, there's the so-called shy Trump phenomenon where maybe people who are supportive of the president are either less willing to say so in a poll or maybe even more difficult to deal with, not as willing to take a poll in the first place. And, you know, are we adequately accounting for that if it's true? I'm not convinced that it's true, but you know, we definitely saw errors in 2016. We saw some errors in 2018 also in some of the state polling that suggests that we haven't completely nailed how to get a segment of the Republican electorate in the proper numbers in, in the samples in some places. So I'm qualifying that in several steps because I don't think it's a kind of a global problem. The, you know, the overall accuracy of polling suggests that we just don't have you know, a major problem, uh, you know, with the methodology. But elections are determined by very small margins these days because of the degree of polarization in the country. 
And because of the electoral college system, you know, very, very small errors can end up leading you to an incorrect conclusion about how everything's going to come down. The president was able in his uh, capturing of the Midwestern states to accumulate an electoral college majority, but he did so with razor thin margins in Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania. And, you know, if if the election's going to be that close, I'm just not sure polling can give us a definitive answer about what's going to happen. It's just that kind of uh, closeness in margins is simply, you know, beyond the, the ability of our tools to precisely ascertain. What I think it, we, we should take away from 2016 is some humility about overall confidence in the outcome. Uh, because I think the, you know, the problems with some of the models that suggested Hillary Clinton had a 90% chance or higher, you know, led to people perhaps being complacent. I don't know if it made any difference in terms of voter turnout. It's, you know, it's theoretically possible. We've seen some research that suggests that it can happen. But I don't think that's a mistake that people are going to make again this year. I don't think they're going to look at the polls and say, ah, it's in the bag, you know, for Biden because he's got such a strong lead at the national level. I think people are going to be savvier this time around. And, you know, I can't tell you what's going to happen, but I do think that people are more realistic about the limitations of the tools this time than they were four years ago. Well, that's good. That that does make me um, feel better. I will say I still have a concern about the interpretation of polling. You had mentioned about how the, the razor thin margins that President Trump won in Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, and you just can't expect polling to be that precise. And that we still will say, we'll report a poll and say, you know, it's a one point margin we're in this particular state. And we'll say it's absolutely too close to call, insignificant statistic lead. And yet I'll see headlines that say this candidate leads the other candidate one point. And I'm like, haven't we learned from 2016? That is not a lead. And I don't know what as pollsters we can do more than saying too close to call, um, within the margin of error, not a lead. And yet, I'll still see headlines that just say this candidate leads that candidate. Yes, it's a it's a persistent problem. I don't think it's the pollsters doing it, at least, you know, the, the good pollsters that we tend to trust. Um, I don't think the major news organizations are likely to be as guilty uh, of it, uh, maybe as they were in the past. I, I think that's something that our colleagues who work in those polling shops are very cautious about. We're making an effort, as as uh, many other people in APOR are, to uh, engage in some journalist education whenever we can. We've held uh, seminars for journalists. Uh, Courtney Kennedy has done a number of workshops where journalists were in the audience uh, to help provide guidance on how to read a poll and how to talk about a lead, what's a, what's a significant lead, what's not. Um, you know, one of the pieces that I mentioned before that's on our website you know, makes the point, this is one that Courtney wrote, makes the point that, you know, the margin of error, when you take into account all of the potential sources of error, not just the error that comes from the size of your sample, may be twice as high, you know, as the nominal margin of error. And so people 
people need to look at numbers and see clouds around them. And, you know, we're trying to stress that message to journalists when we ever get uh, the opportunity to talk to them. Earlier, Scott, you had mentioned sort of the forecasters and, and the, you know, the likelihood that President Trump would win in 2016. I'm just curious on your take on places like 538. You know, they do something very different than a poll, of course. A poll is, a, you know, sort of snapshot of what uh, voters think right now versus 538, which is trying to predict what's going to happen in the election. They they take an average of the polls, but they also, you know, kind of add secret sauce in terms of trying to make their predictions. I was just curious, are you somewhat, do you follow 538? Do you think that's a, it's a good thing? I do. I do look at the, at the modelers. Um, you know, I think that they're, um, like everybody else, they're learning as we go along. Uh, you know, I, I think you won't see quite the pattern that we saw four years ago with them. But I don't have any objection to them. I find them fascinating and look at them myself. I like some of the things that uh, they're, the various ones are doing in terms of trying to make judgments about the quality of the inputs, you know, the polls that they're feeding into the into the models. I think that's a responsible thing to do. But you know, we we have done a little bit of research that suggests that the public has a hard time making sense of a probability. Mm. That they, you know, the simplest error that people seem to make is that they mistake a probability for a vote share. So that if, even if you were saying, well, Biden has a 66% chance of winning or 70% chance of winning, just a hypothetical number, Somebody may see that and think that he's getting 70 percent in the polls. That doesn't seem like the kind of mistake that you or I would make. But we found that it does seem to happen with a lot of people or psychologically. They know it's not 70 percent a share in the poll. But nonetheless, it kind of imbues psychologically the idea that it's a dead certain thing that, you know, the person who's got 70 percent chance of winning is going to win when you know, for those of us who try to think probabilistically, we know that a three in 10 chance is something that's going to happen a lot. The thing that's not favored is quite, you know, you, you just can't be surprised when it happens. So that's the downside of those is I just don't think the public is is yet sophisticated enough with probabilities to make good sense of them. Whether these things could be explained more clearly with good graphics seen some interesting experiments um, in ways to try to do that. But um, right now, I think that they have the potential to confuse people and to make them think that there's greater certainty than perhaps there there really is. And sort of a, a related question, real clear politics does the averages. Now, they're not predicting, they're just taking all the polls and taking a, a very clean average of where the horse race is. Do you think for you know your average polling consumer, that's a good way to make sense of all the different polls that are out there? Or would you, you know, recommend that they get their polling info another way? Well, I don't want to give them advice, but if if I were building an average, I certainly wouldn't just put any poll in there. I mean, that has the effect of giving greater weight to polls that are cheaper or done more frequently 
and those may not be the best polls, probably aren't the best polls. And so I think there, there are some real potential biases if the strategy is just a simple average. On the other hand, I go to Real Clear all the time because I think they're very good about, you know, quickly updating their list of polls so you can see who's done what. They link to the press release or the report from the poll so you can directly go to the poll and try to make some judgments about quality. So, you know, it's performing a useful service, but I don't think the average, the, the sort of simple arithmetic average like that is is something that's very trustworthy. I think where I'd like to ask my, my last question is about, as we're talking about where people get their information about polls, I'm kind of curious about your use of Twitter and what you think of, you know, the value. It's in our world of politics, it's seems to have such a big influence. I mean, you put out a poll, it goes everywhere. And sometimes these are high quality polls, sometimes low. There's so much discussion about sort of the methodological details and whether this poll is an outlier or not. And I'm just kind of curious your take on Twitter and, and polling. Twitter is complicated. It's a, you know, in some respects, people see it as sort of a cesspool of backbiting and name calling and it definitely has its limitations as a communications medium. I think people have trouble communicating subtlety and um, proper uh, representation of their emotions on Twitter. It's just limiting, you know, the character limits. So it, it has some it has some disadvantages. But as a networking tool and an ability to gather information from a wide variety of sources, to have something that's pretty timely, it's pretty good, you know. And I use it for the reasons that you suggest. I can I can hear from pollsters who are working in the field. I can see the criticisms that they're making of each other's work. You know, you get in you get some conversations going that are pretty interesting sometimes. And so I find it a, a useful tool, but I also uh, agree with people who find it to be something that raises your anxiety level. Uh, but of course you have complete control over that. You can just unfollow everybody that makes you anxious and uh just follow the, the people that um, help inform you. You know, most of us don't do that, of course, and so then we get to complain about it. But um, it, it is within your control, at least to some degree, to curate your feed into something that's more humane. That is good advice, Scott. And with that, I think, unfortunately, I'd like to go on for hours, and but I can't. And I thank you so much um, for being so generous with your time and knowledge, as you always have been. I, again, I thank you from early on in my career. And this is just kind of reminds me of our first conversation many years ago. Well, thank you, Doug. It's been a, a delight talking with you, and I appreciate the opportunity to come on and talk this nerdy stuff with a fellow nerd. <laughs> Anytime. I'm here for you to do some nerd talk. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on The Polling Perspective, a production of the Quinnipiac University Podcast Studio in partnership with the Quinnipiac University Poll. Our podcast is produced by David DeRoche, Samantha Stella, and Mark Bouchard. For more information on The Poll, visit poll.qu.edu. For more information on our podcasts, 
visit qu.edu slash podcast. Don't forget to connect with us on Twitter at QU Podcasts and at Quinnipiac Poll. I'm Doug Schwartz. Thanks so much for listening, and I hope you join us for our next episode.